Welcome to Christ the King. Uh, my name is Penny, and I'm the pastor here. If you are a guest or a visitor, welcome. Uh, we are glad that you're with us this morning as we uh, come and we sing to our Lord as we gather around his word, and, and we, uh, we, we come and worship the King of the universe. Uh, this is good and right for us to do, and so uh, if you are a guest, welcome, and we are glad that you're with us as we uh, do worship our God. This morning, we're going to be looking at Psalm 130. Uh, this summer, we're looking at uh, various psalms. Uh, and, and this morning, the psalm we're coming to is Psalm 130. And so if you have a Bible, please turn there. If you uh, don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the chair in front of you, and you can find the passage on page 518 of Psalm uh, 130. Now, Psalm 130 is a psalm of ascent. Uh, there are 15 psalms of ascent, Psalm 120 through 134. And what these psalms, what we think how they were used was as the people of God were going on pilgrimage to Jerusalem throughout the year, they would be called back to Jerusalem to ascend to the great city of God. They were to go to have these various feasts that the Lord had, uh, had commanded them to have and to celebrate. And, and we believe that as they were going up to Jerusalem for these feasts, that these are the songs that they would sing. That as they were going on their way, they couldn't turn the radio on and listen to the top 20. They, they sang these songs to remind them of the beautiful truth of who God is and who they were as God's people. It would be a way of them preparing for the feast that they were about to partake in. And this psalm, Psalm 130, is one of those songs. It, it's a lament psalm. We actually just sang it. Uh, maybe you noticed that. Uh, we just sang this psalm, and it's a lament. It's a crying out to God in the midst of despair, in the midst of, of the depths in the darkness. This was one of the psalms that they would sing. And this is one of the psalms that, uh, throughout church history, many theologians have, have turned to again and again. For instance, John Owen, the great Puritan uh, theologian, he wrote 325 pages on this one psalm. 325 pages on eight verses. The, the Puritans definitely uh, like their words. <laughs> um, but don't, don't worry, I'm, I'm not going to spend uh, 325 pages. Uh, I, I don't have that many up here, so you can, you can take a sigh of relief. But, but the reason why Owen spent so much time on this psalm is because he saw the beauty of it. He saw that even in the midst of this lament, even in the midst of the depths that the psalmist was going into, that there was great hope. There was great hope. See, that's what the psalm tells us, that regardless of what we bring to this place this morning, regardless of what it is that you may be experiencing, that for God's people there is hope. So let's go ahead and read Psalm 130, a song of ascents. Out of the depths I cried to you, O Lord, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits in his word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord is steadfast love and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Our God and our King, it is 
uh, with hopeful hearts that we come to this passage because we are very aware that we are in need. We are in need of you. And so we ask that as we come to this passage that you would turn our eyes towards your beauty, that you would soften our hearts to your word, and that you would enlighten our minds so that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would please you and we would leave this place filled with hope. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, when Kat and I were uh, in St. Louis for seminary, uh, we, we met this one couple. Uh, their names are Matt and Sharon. Uh, Matt and Sharon were a couple years behind us in seminary, but they came like, like the rest of us to be trained, Matt to be trained to be a pastor in, in the PCA, to, to go out from St. Louis and lead God's people and do all sorts of things. But Matt and Sharon also uh, wanted to go and be church planters. And so as they were in seminary, they took all the classes they could about church planting, and they did, uh, they worshiped at different plants in the city to learn what it was like to start a new church, a new work. And when graduation came, they went through all the trials, and they went through all the assessments, and sure enough, the powers that be said, we think you're called to church planting. And so off they went to Denver, where they did a two-year church planting apprenticeship. And after that apprenticeship was over, they were sent out by that church to to a part of Denver to go and take the gospel to, to this little neighborhood in Denver that's very, very eclectic. It's very eclectic, this particular neighborhood that they're in. I I forget off the top of my head what it's called, but but it's a neighborhood that has uh, a great deal of wealth as well as a great deal of poverty. It's a neighborhood that has people who are very educated and people who are uneducated. It's a neighborhood where there are people who have great means and those who are scraping to get by. It's a very eclectic place. It's multi-ethnic, it's multi-economic, it's multi-educational. It's very eclectic. But, but the one thing that most of the people in this neighborhood have in common is that they don't know the gospel. You see, this part of Denver that they were sent to plant a church in is a part of Denver that, that is actually very unchurched where there are a lot of people who who don't know the gospel. Matt and Sharon, they went into this little neighborhood and they were interacting with drug addicts and and people who had been hurt by the church and wandered away and now for the first time in years were considering coming back to church. They were interacting with people who had never met an actual Christian. They had seen the caricatures on the news, but they had never actually met someone who truly believed in Jesus people who had never heard the gospel. This is the neighborhood they went into, and as they went into it, they went with great hope and great excitement because who knows what the Lord might do. And sure enough, after a little bit of time, a few years of hard work, the the Lord started to bring people to himself. He was taking people who were addicted to drugs and bringing them to the Lord. He was causing people to repent and believe. It's this beautiful story. The church was growing. People were hearing the truth. Even this month, the month of June, the church as a whole was going to set out to do evangelistic efforts within the neighborhood. Things were going great, not just for the church, but also personally. Matt and Sharon had welcomed a new child into their midst. I think they have like five or six kids now. And, and you know, so they, they bought a new house because they need more space and a, a place for them to practice hospitality. Things were going wonderful until they weren't. You see, five days before they were supposed to close on their house, five days before they were supposed to close on the house that they were selling to move into their new house, Matt awoke. It was a Saturday morning. It was May. 
It was seven in the morning, May 25th. He awoke, it's, he's getting his coffee together, he's getting his breakfast ready, and he started to smell something. But it wasn't the coffee brewing, it was smoke. And so very quickly he runs outside and he looks up and his house is on fire. So he runs back inside the house and he gets all of his kids, his wife, he gets them all out. The kids grab their favorite stuffed animals and they go rushing outside. They call the fire department and the truck comes and they start putting out the fire. Now Matt, at the time, we get his newsletter and in his newsletter he said he stood there and he was watching the fire on his roof and the firefighters fighting this fire and he thought, you know what, this is no big deal, they've got under control. This is what he wrote. He said, I actually thought it's going to be just like a creme brulee, a little burnt on the top, but everything else will be okay. But the fire kept burning and three more trucks had to show up. And, and over time, the ceilings and the windows and the walls, they all were ripped out. And when the fire was finally put out, all their possessions were smoke damaged and waterlogged and the house was completely destroyed. That's hard to imagine, isn't that? It's hard to imagine standing there and watching everything that you have. Sure, sure, your family is safe, no one is hurt, we can be thankful for that, but to watch everything that you have be completely destroyed. It's hard to imagine that, right? To have no place to live, to sleep, no clothes to wear, no beds to lay your heads down upon. Just a few days before, everything was bright and hopeful. And now they are filled with darkness and doubt. In just a moment, things changed. And they went down into the darkness of the depths. You know, I imagine that few of us have experienced exactly what Matt and Sharon experienced that morning. And I imagine that maybe some of us have a taste of it. But, but regardless of whether we've ever had a house burn or we've lost all of our possessions, the truth is, is we know some of this darkness, don't we? Because every one of us has lost a job or we've lost children or we've lost parents. Every one of us has experienced the darkness. Every one of us has experienced the depths, the doubting, the questioning. Every one of us has experienced that to some degree or another. We've experienced it, Matt and Sharon have. And so too is the psalmist. I mean, that's where the psalm began, right? In verse 1, the psalmist speaks of the depths. Out of the depths I cry to you, O, o Lord. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Now, that word depths, when it's used in the Old Testament, most often it is used with the qualifier water or sea. So, so the depths of the water, the depths of the sea. And it's indicating, it's describing the, the ocean depths. And so what the psalmist is doing is he is saying metaphorically that whatever he's experiencing, whatever he's going through, it is as though he is drowning. He's surrounded by the weight of water and he's gasping for air. And when he opens his mouth, there is no air to fill his lungs. It's only water. He is drowning. And what is causing this drowning? Well, we're not exactly sure. We're not told the specifics exactly of his situation. But there, there are some clues in the psalm. Look at verses 2 and 3. He says, O Lord, hear my voice. 
Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? So the language of mercy, calling out for mercy, the invoking of iniquity, it it leads us to the belief that what's causing him to go into these depths is his very sin. It's his own sin. It's his iniquity, right? That's why he speaks of iniquity. We don't know the specific sins, and yet it is his sins that are weighing upon him. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read this psalm, the language that he uses is very evocative. It's actually quite surprising to me when I think about him talking about his sin, right? I mean, mercy, right? Crying out to mercy, pleading, depths, right? There's an emotional weight to what he's experiencing. And the emotional weight is, it is quite burdensome and it's enormous. And he's carrying it because of his sin. Now, what's interesting to me about that is when I started thinking about the way I think about my sin, those aren't the words that I use. Those aren't the words that I use. Those aren't the words that I run to. Maybe, maybe you're the same. When you think about your sin, maybe, maybe this kind of language, well, this sort of emotion, that's, that's not, these aren't the words that we run to. These aren't the words that are on our lips. I mean, we feel this sort of depth when we lose a house or a friendship or a job, when, when we feel alone or out of control. We expect that sort of emotional language in those situations, but because of our sin? Now, I think that we don't feel the depths of our sin because oftentimes internally, the way we think about our sin is, you know, it's not that bad. It's really not that big of a deal. I mean, it didn't really hurt anyone. Right? I had this thought in my mind, nobody knows about it. I, I clicked on that website, and no one will ever know. Right? We think it's really not that bad. It doesn't really hurt anyone. I'll just move on. I'll just forget it. I'll just sweep it under the rug and just, just keep living. Just take the next day at a time. Right? Like, that's the way we often think about our sins. Like, don't actually think about it too much. I mean, that makes us feel bad. <laughs> Or maybe sometimes the way we appropriate our sin is that we just make excuses. And we start blaming others. Right? I mean, that's, that's what Adam and Eve did. Right? When Adam and Eve rebelled against God and God came into the garden and said, what have you done? What did Eve say? The serpent made me do it. And what did Adam say? The woman whom you gave me made me do it. Right? It's not my fault, God. The serpent tricked me. It's not my fault. Eve told me to eat it. It's not my fault. It's your fault, God, because you gave her to me. It's everybody else's fault, but it ain't my fault. Making excuses. We, we do that sometimes, don't we? Like, I wouldn't get so angry if, if she would just stop nagging me. I wouldn't have gossiped if he hadn't have kept pressing me for more information. It's their fault. If my children would only obey, if my boss would only listen to me, if that person would just get off my back, right? It's, it's not my fault. We make excuses. We blame shift. We point the finger. But not the psalmist. Did you notice that? The psalmist doesn't do that. He doesn't make excuses. He doesn't minimize. And he certainly doesn't hide. No, instead, what he does is he, he brings his sin out to the Lord. 
right? He recognizes that his sin is not an accident, it's not a misstep, and it's not someone else's fault. It's not something to hide away. He understands that it must be brought to the Lord, and this is why he pleads for mercy. This is why he invokes his own iniquity, because he understands the severity of it. Our sin isn't an accident. It isn't a misstep. It is rebellion. Our sin is an act of war against a holy God. It's a turning away from him. And the psalmist understands this. He understands the severity of his sin. Look at verse 3. He says, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? O Lord, who could stand? Now, obviously, the question is rhetorical. And the answer is, no one. Who could stand if you marked our iniquities? No one. No one could stand. This is exactly in keeping. This is in complete keeping with the rest of the biblical witness. In Romans chapter 3, the Apostle Paul says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In Romans chapter 6, the Apostle Paul writes, For the wages of sin is death. And in James, we're told that if you keep the whole law, but you stumble at just one point, you have become guilty of it all. What the psalmist and what the biblical witness is telling us is that what our sin has earned and what we're deserving is death. It's that severe. He doesn't minimize it. He doesn't skirt around it. It's that severe, and that's why he cries out for mercy. That's why he begs for help. Because he knows that every lustful thought that every prideful word, every hateful inclination are all personal affronts to the king of the universe. And there's nothing that he can do. And so what does he do? He looks to someone who can. He looks to someone who can. He cries out and asks for mercy. He hopes. He hopes. You see, the psalmist knows that his sin is not the end of the story, that there is hope even in the midst of the depths. That though he is drowning, there, there is a day where light and life will come. That's why he cries out. Why he asks the Lord to hear his voice. Because he believes that the Lord is able and willing to help him in the midst of his drowning. See, this is why I love the laments. <laughs> this is why I love the laments. Because they are very honest and they are very real about our struggle and about our state and about our depths, but they don't leave us in the depths. They give us hope. There's hope. Hope that God actually enters into the depths to deliver us out of them. I mean, did you hear the hopeful language? The hopeful language of verses 5 and 6. The psalmist says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. In his word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. And that image of the watchman is the image of, of one who's standing on the wall. Standing on the wall of the city or of a, of a, of a castle or of some sort of fortress. That, and their job is to stay up all night long. And their job is to look out into the night to see if there is any enemies coming. And if they are there to sound the alarm to awaken the city. That danger may be approaching. And this, this job was an important job, the watchman. But it was also a tedious job. Because all they did was spend all night long looking into the darkness. I mean, can, 
you spent all night up before, right? Right? Um, students, maybe too many times, right? Even just last night, I was awoken in the middle of the night and could not fall back asleep. And, and what do you long for? You long for rest, right? For rest to come again. You, you hope for morning to come, for the night to be over. That's what the watchmen would have longed for. They're looking out on this, this, in the midst of the darkness, and they're hoping for the morning to come because when the morning comes, they can have rest. They can have peace. And what the psalmist is saying is that, that just as the watchman would look out, just as the watchman would be waiting for the mor- morning, that, that he is more stalwart than, than even the, the most, the greatest of watchers. You see, the psalmist is anticipating the metaphorical morning that would come because in the morning, the darkness will end and the psalmist's soul will find what it's been waiting for. It will find rest. His watching will be no more. The Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner said this way, he said, Night may seem endless, but morning is certain, and it's time determined. The, the night will come to an end. Morning will break, break through. As soon as I read this, I thought about this scene in the two towers, the Lord of the Rings, the two towers. So, um, so if, if you're not familiar with the Lord of the Rings, I, I don't have time to explain the whole thing to you, but, <laughs> but, um, but there's this scene where uh, the people of Rohan, who are good people uh, and innocent people, they, they are being attacked by the orcs and the enemies of Middle-earth, and so where do they go, right? They, they go to Helm's Deep. Helm's Deep is this fortress where they will hide behind the walls and it, they will find protection, they will find safety. But, but Gandalf, who's the white wizard, this great hero, he's not going to go with them to Helm's Deep. Instead, he's going to ride out and he's going to find help and bring the help back. And so he says to them, as they are going to Helm's Deep and as he's about to depart, he says, look to my coming. Look to my coming on the first light of the fifth day. At dawn, look to the east. And on the morning of the fifth day, the sun starts to rise over the hill and and they look out just when it seems like it's at its darkest, when the enemy is going to win. And what do they see? They see Gandalf on his white steed, ready to ride down with all the help. In the morning, look for help. And that's what the psalmist is saying. That in the midst of our sin, in the midst of darkness, that he will wait, he will look as a watchman for help because he knows that in the morning help will come because the Lord will come. Because with the Lord there is forgiveness. You see, that is where his hope rests. His hope rests upon the forgiveness of the Lord. Look at verse 4. In response to verse 3, if the Lord should mark iniquities, who could stand? The answer is no one. But then we have verse 4, but... But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. But with you, there is forgiveness. The psalmist is saying, of course I can't stand. Of course I can't rid myself of my iniquity. Of course my sin condemns me. But but with you, there is forgiveness. Two weeks in a row, we have these big buts, right? The, the but last week that led us to the negative, but the but this week that leads us to what is beautiful, to what is true, 
there is forgiveness. With the Lord, there is forgiveness. Earlier I said John Owen spent 325 pages on these eight verses. Over 200 of those 325 were devoted to this one verse. Over 200 pages on with the Lord, there is forgiveness. And the truth is, is that tomes could be written because of how deep God's forgiveness is. You see, Owen understood what the psalmist understood and what we need to understand, that as deep as the pit is, as dark as the depths are, as much as we may be drowning and looking for air, God's grace is greater still. It is greater still. His forgiveness is deeper than the pit. It's more powerful than the depths. There is no darkness so dark that the light of God cannot penetrate it. That's what John chapter 1 tells us. Jesus is called the light of the world. And then it says the darkness has not overcome the light. And Corrie ten Boom, she once wrote that there is no pit so deep that God is not deeper still. And Corrie ten Boom knew the depths. This woman who lived through Nazi occupation and was in a Nazi concentration camp. And even though she experienced those sorts of depths, she can say there is no pit so deep that God is not deeper still. Friends, that is why we hope in the Lord. That is where we put our hope in God's forgiving grace. Now, I don't know all of you. I don't know of all the things that you're struggling with. I don't know all the things that you brought in here this morning. I, and, and of those who I do know, I don't know everything about you. And you don't know everything about me. And so I don't know. Maybe, maybe some of you are sitting here this morning and you're going, well, Penny, that, that sounds all well and good. Grace, mercy, forgiveness. I mean, that's what we want to hear at church, isn't it? That sounds all well and good. But, but you don't know my sin. You don't know those things that, that I wouldn't even confess silently earlier in the service. You don't know the things that I'm struggling with and the sins that I've kept hidden and the sins that no one knows. Well, friends, if that's you, if that's you this morning, and, and the truth is, is that even if it's not you, you we all, we all need to hear that, that God's grace is deeper. That his forgiveness is stronger than your sin. That the Bible is, is actually filled with murderers and adulterers, with liars and cheats, with swindlers and idolaters. And, and these men and women who, when they confessed their sin, what did they find? They found grace and they found forgiveness. They found, verse 4, that with God there is forgiveness. And so if you come here and you are weighed down by your sin and you are burdened by it, then, then do not wait. Do not keep that hidden. Do not keep that in the dark. Do not stay silent about it, but cry out. Cry out to the Lord. As the hymn puts it, if you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. It's not for the righteous that Christ came, but it is for sinners that he came to call. And so sinners like me and like you cry out for mercy. Bring your sin into the light and know God's forgiving grace. Because that is where we place our hope.
You see, this grace that the psalmist speaks of, it's not just for him. Look at verses 7 through 8. He turns his attention away from himself, and he turns it to the people of God. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Do you hear that? It's not just for the psalmist. It's not just for David or for Abraham or for the patriarchs. It's not just for the apostles or the prophets. It's not just for the pastor or the mission. It is for all God's people. Call out to him and know his deliverance. Know his grace. A deliverance that comes through him, not by our strength, but, but from God's. You see, the pit, friends, is so deep we could never pull ourselves out. The depths are so dark that we could never find the light on our own. But what is amazing is that God goes into the pit to bring us up out of it. That that is exactly what we need and that's exactly what he does. Because the gospel, which is the good news of Christ, coming into this world to save sinners. The gospel, which is the good news of the kingdom of God coming to bear. The gospel is the good news of Jesus coming into a sin-soaked world and entering into the depths and going to the cross to deliver us out of those depths. I mean, that's what we heard earlier in the service, isn't it? After we confessed our sins, after we silently confessed our sins, what were the words spoken over us from Ephesians? God, being rich in mercy, because of the love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, even when we were in the pit, even when we were in the depths, God, when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. You see, what that declares to us is that because Christ has been raised from the dead, that those who have put their hope in him, we too will be raised. That sin is not the end of our story. But that God's forgiving love, his grace, his mercy, that is the end. That the people of God, that in the midst of our sin, we don't look to ourselves, but we cry out and we plead and we ask for mercy and we watch and we put our hope in the God who forgives and the God who delivers and the God who brings us into newness of life. And so friends, cry out. Do not keep your sin hidden. Do, do, not, do not go down into the pit and remain there, but beg for mercy because God is merciful. He is gracious he puts our sins as far as the east is from the west, as one psalm tells us. He forgives his people. And that is why we put our hope in him. That is why we trust in him. Because he is the one who has brought us up. And so let us cry out and let us hope. Let us pray. Our God and our Father, we do thank you that you have not left us to ourselves but that instead you, you sent your son into this world to save sinners, to save people like me and save people like us. People who were dead in our sins and trespasses, you came into this world to, to save your people. And so we praise you and worship you and ask that, that today and tomorrow and, and all of our days that we would be a people of repentance, a people crying out in need, a people crying out with hope, 
with the grace of our Lord. So Father, put, put those words on our lips. Fill our hearts with hope. Help us to believe that with you there is plenteous grace. There is forgiveness greater than all of our sin. Show us this, we pray, for the good of your people and for the sake of your name. We pray in Christ's name and all God's people said, Amen.